Amen. <clears throat> Thanks, guys. Uh, if you uh, notice, maybe our sound is a little bit different uh, this morning. Um, <laughs> this past week, our guys were uh, working on uh, tweaking the system, getting it better, um, trying, to, trying to do some improvements on it uh, here, trying to mic stuff. And uh, so they were working on things, and uh, somebody just said, man, I don't know if we're getting all the power we should be getting out of these amps. Well, when you set the amps, they're back here in this room, you set them and you walk away from them. You do it, you EQ everything, you get it done, and then if there's any EQing that does have to happen, it happens out here. So these amps you never touch. And uh, so we never touch those things. You never go back there. And we put this system in about 12 years ago, and I, I think probably for the last 10 years, it's just been nasty, like underperforming and annoying, and I'm like, well, maybe we just didn't. I thought it sounded better, but it just, whatever. So this past week, somebody said, go back there and check those amps. So Jeff goes back there, he starts looking at the amps. Well, you don't do anything with the amps, but there's actually this other thing called a crossover. And Jeff's looking at it going, hey, there's like dials on this thing. <laughs> Somebody had turned down our overall power and EQ. So power-wise, wattage-wise, we were only operating at 20% of this system for the last 10 years. Turn down the bass, turn down the treble. It's like, you ever get those little equalizer bands in your car or in the stereo, you just turn them all down, the sound sounds awful, right? And then if you turn down all your power, it sounds really bad, and then it fuzzes out, and well, that's been the last 10 years. But fortunately, we discovered it with about two months left in our building. <laughs> so annoying. It's the story of my life. So we're going to take it with us now, man. We're going to put it somewhere. I don't know. Put it in the cry room. Jack it up in there. I don't know. Um, no, uh, hey, wanted to do a couple things. So, yeah, if you hear any hums or buzzes, that's what's happening is, is now we got power. <laughs> we don't know what to do with it. So uh, things are overloading, hums and uh, stuff like that. So there's still time to tweak this thing and figure it out. But uh, one of the things that happened uh, last week, we meant to do it. It was part of our schedule, and it, it um, got overlooked, and that's my fault. But uh, we wanted to honor our veterans, and uh, that's just an important part, I think, of, uh, of life and community. And so if you are part of the armed service, like you are serving currently or you have served in a previous uh, time, we'd love to have you stand, and we want to honor you and uh, show our appreciation for your service. So if you could stand right now, we'd appreciate that. And your service, uh, obviously, in light of all that's happened the last couple of weeks, uh, the terrorist attacks in Paris, the, the uh, hotel um, hostage situation in Mali, or some of the more recent ones, but uh, uh, your sacrifice service stands in harm's way, protects us, and uh, we just want to recognize that. It comes, um, obviously, at a sacrifice and a price sometimes that's pretty high. And uh, I want to just take a moment just to pray, um, just to pray for these things, what's going on in, the, in our world, for, in our country, and how it even uh, touches us here in Ohio. So let me pray for a second. Lord, we, uh, we come before you and we just sung this song, the God of angel armies. Um, Lord, we thank you that uh, 
ultimately we are under your protection. That you are this, the high commander of heavenly armies. Nothing can stand against you. Lord, I pray that the spiritual truth and reality would touch our souls and spirit this morning. Pray you would cast out all fear, worry, and anxiety. We pray for righteousness to rule in this world. We pray for your peace to come. You invite us to pray for peace so that the gospel may spread. So we pray for peace in Iraq and Syria, Yemen, Iran, Jordan, North Africa, places like Egypt, Sudan, We pray for peace to reach your peace, your peace, France, Belgium. Lord, would you bring justice? We ask that you would bring justice, Lord, that uh, you would not let these things go unpunished. You, you call us to trust into you, to, uh, to trust your judgments, and so we ask for that. Lord, for those governments and the leaders of those governments, you say you have put into place, we pray, God, you would force their hand towards righteousness, truth. Lord, we would see a resurgence in this void of relativism, God, of truth. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I invite you to turn to Joshua 6. It's uh, kind of interesting, the timing of everything, uh, with the backdrop of what's happened with uh, ISIS and terrorism, and we've watched this play out in Iraq and Syria as they've marched across those two countries and we've seen them come into villages and completely wipe out, um, kill every person in the village. And it's chilling to watch. They even post some of these things on, on the web. Um, it's haunting. It's to see this, to know this. It's, uh, there's so many feelings I'm sure we all have as we watch these things play out. And uh, they do this all in the name of God. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Jericho. And uh, I don't know whether you've read through Jericho, the Battle of Jericho. There's two versions of Jericho. There's the Sunday school version of Jericho, which is like VeggieTales, right? Right? I mean, you all seen VeggieTales. You got Larry the Cucumber, you got the tomato, and, and there's something, you know, like um, they, they go around... What is that? Keep walking. No, you won't knock down our wall. Keep walking. No, she isn't gonna fall. It's plain to see. Your brains are very small, so just keep walking. No, you won't knock down our wall. Something like that, right? I mean, it's, you remember that? The, the little peas are up there on the top, and they're making insults as the guys walk around the thing. And um, 
That's the story of Jericho we, we teach our kids. That's the story of Jericho that often gets preached is God wants to tear down the walls in your life and you just need to, to go to him and he'll tear down the walls of your life. The problem with that story is that is actually not the story of Jericho. The story, that story actually stops halfway in to the story of Jericho. It doesn't actually finish the story of Jericho and it really has nothing really to do about God knocking down our walls that are in front of us. It has so much more to do with what God is doing and it's a story I don't think maybe, maybe we totally sit back and listen to and soak in. But it's a story of uh, a whole city being killed. That's the story of Jericho. So let's read this. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out. No one came in. Important detail, read chapter 5, verse 1. This is why it's all shut up. One chapter earlier, now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. They're scared to death. They put this, this, this city under lockdown. Nobody gets in. Nobody gets out. They have a water source from within, so they're fine. They actually can withstand months, months, if not a year of being under siege, and they're fine, and, and their walls are big, their city's fortified, nobody's just going to climb over these walls, Israel has no siege machines, no mechanisms, no training in war and, and how to siege a city, and, and so they're safe at this point when you think about it, but the word's out. And, and these people are scared, and they're scared of Israel because they saw what Israel's God did for them. And, and they're ultimately scared of, of what their God might do to them. And so they shut up the city gates and doors and everything. Now, what's interesting as this starts off, we're actually picking up in chapter 6 in the middle of a conversation that Joshua is having with the commander of the Lord the Lord's army, the heavenly hosts, who is actually Jesus prior, before he comes. I, I believe it is Jesus before he comes to earth and is born through Mary. And so he's talking with Joshua, and that's that whole conversation Pastor Lynn had about whose side are you on or everything, and Jesus said, oh, I'm, I'm not on anybody's side. Whose side are really? The question is, are you on my side or not? And so he's coming, he's telling Joshua now, hey, hey this is how it's all going to fold out, and, and, and this is how it's going to play out. And, and so he says here in verse 2, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. What stands out is, is God starts to talk to Josh about how this is going to go. He says, see, I've already given you the city of Jericho. He does it past tense. As if to say, not as if, he is saying literally, you guys aren't going to do anything here. 
I am going to fight this battle. In fact, I've already fought the battle and won it. It's yours. This is over. It's over before it ever began. It's an accomplished victory through God. But the, the problem Israel is facing is that there is a wall around here. And Joshua is looking at it. There is a wall around here. And rather than doing uh, this typical siege, like if you've ever read The Art of War by that guy, Su Zhao, who, what, I, I can't remember his name, he, he talks about how you do war. I don't think he would say this is a very effective plan for waging war. Blowing trumpets, making a lot of racket, and walking around. It's not a great battle plan. But the battle plan God has in mind is a spiritual siege. It's a spiritual siege. It sounds ridiculous to this world, but that's it. And the most significant repeated word in this chapter is the word seven. Seven happens over and over and over again. Seven, 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 seven trumpets, seven priests, seven times around the city, seven days, seven, 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 seven. You're going to hear it all the time. And, and here's the thing. What's, what's up with seven? It's God's number. Seven days, right? Six days was the earth created. Seventh day he rested seven Seven is like this. If you ever have like a favorite number, did you grow up in playing sports or anything? Did you have a number that you always wanted to wear no matter what sport you were in? Or if you look at your favorite football team, baseball team, whatever, you see hockey, whatever, basketball, what's the famous number? Like here's a famous number, number 23, basketball. What's that number? Michael Jordan. Everybody knows Jordan's number. What's another famous number? 99, who's 99? Gretzky. Yeah, hockey, here we go. All right, 16, Joe Montana. Can we say that in this room? No, we're not talking about John Elway in this room, right? Although we got a Denver fan in the back, but uh, my wife, John Elway. So um, think about it. You, you associate somebody with their number. Here's the thing. If you got to NASCAR, you saw a number. What's a famous number on a NASCAR? There you go. You know the number, you know the driver. When you hear the number seven, whose number is it? God's. It's not somebody else's. We won't mention. God's number is seven. And when you see seven show up, it's as if, and this is, this is totally not supposed to be irreverent or anything, but it's as if you see the jersey on the field. God's on the field. Number seven Look who's come to play. Watch out. God's number is there. It's all over this passage. He says, I want you to blow these trumpets, get these seven priests. I want you to march seven times. I want you to march for seven days. And so they simply did it. So Joshua gets these instructions from God, and he goes, now what we see in verse 6 is him telling and passing it on to Israel. He says, take up the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now we got the Ark of the Covenant. We only got, not only do we have number seven, but we've got the Ark of the Covenant, which is the, the place where God's manifest presence was. So you now have God marching around. Everybody knows, okay, if the Ark is there, God's presence is on that. It's not a magical box, but there's this blessing. There's this awareness that God is here. So you have the number seven. You have the Ark of the Covenant. And he goes on. He says, carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Have the seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. 
He ordered the people advance. Now this is not all t- entirely in sequence, but it, it, the, the, the author is telling the story here. March around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Joshua added some extra elements that maybe God told them to do this, maybe he didn't, but it was okay apparently. Verse eight, Joshua had spoken to the people. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets and the ark of the Lord's covenant following them, followed them. Sorry, The armed guard followed or marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. I mean, the, the trumpets are just blowing. These ram's horns are just blowing the whole time. But Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So we had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the people returned to the camp and spent the night there. Sequentially, here we go, day two. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. Imagine about two million people walking around 10 acres is what they estimate the size of the city was, 10 acres. So they're marching around, and, and the first ones are stopped, and the, the, the last part of that procession is still marching. I mean, this is it's a lot of people in a small area. The armed men went ahead of them, and their rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and they did this for six days. So their response is simply this. Will they look at the plan and say, that is about the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard? Will they protest? Will they do what they did the moment they were standing up against that opportunity 40 years earlier of going into the land and reject it, or will they just do it? And, and what's interesting is there's no argument. In fact, there's no, there's no word at all spoken by Israel except obedience. They just did it. No questions asked did it for seven days. And at day seven, we realized there's more to the conversation that God had with Joshua that we weren't let in on, but now we get to find out, oh, wait a minute, there was more things God told them. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. You're hearing seven. The seventh around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are left with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable for, to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, and when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, fell on top of itself, literally is how it said. It didn't get pushed over by anybody. It literally fell on top of itself. So every man charged straight in. They took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. It's in the middle of the story that you finally hear what the story is about and what really God is doing. And this word in the Hebrew 
we see it as devote these things to the Lord. The word is harem, H-E-R-E-M. Means to devote or set apart as an offering to the Lord. Means the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord often by totally destroying them to prevent anybody else from ever owning or using them. It's a famous word. There's a books written on this word harem. I don't know how you pronounce it. Harem. But he calls his people to harem is actually how they would say it. Take all the precious metals. Everything goes in my treasury. Not one person gets one Sent one gram of precious metals. It's all for me and my treasury. And don't take one person or animal as a prisoner, but give them to the Lord specifically by killing every one of them. Now that's the story of Jericho. Let me give you some background to this. How did, how did we get to this point? Because there's a huge vacuum of how do we go from crossing the Jordan River all of a sudden into wiping out an entire city? What happened? Genesis 15 is where you have to go back to understand the context here. Genesis 15 is when God comes to this guy named Abram, ends up changing his name to Abraham, comes to him and says, I am going to make out of your family line a nation, and I'm going to make, give that nation the land, the land that Abram was living in at that time called Canaan. And, and this land and this nation, through, through this nation, I'm going to bless the entire world. Those are the three promises. But it's not going to happen in your lifetime, Abram. And he goes on to, to say this in uh, Genesis chapter 15, he says, look, know for certain, he gives him a prophecy, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. That's the prophecy of Egypt, right? But I will punish the nation, Egypt, they serve as slaves, and afterward they, meaning Israel, will come out with great possessions. It's a prophecy, it happened, you saw that in Exodus you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age, which is kind of cool. It's like, hey, you're going to live to be old. It's all good. In the fourth generation after your descendants will come back here, or in your fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sins or the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So that's 600 years prior to Jericho. Who are the Amorites? Jericho, and the people living in the land of Canaan at that time. And he says, the sin has not come or reached its full measure. What is happening is God sees this group of people who are rejecting him, rebelling against him, and he wants to give them time. And he gives him a long leash. He gives him 600 years to turn. 600 years of chances. And what were they doing? Well, over and actually, uh, I'm trying to find it here, um, Leviticus 18 is a long list. You can go and read it of what exactly 
the Amorites and all the other people living in Canaan at that time, the promised land, were doing. It's a long list of sexual immorality, every kind and form of sexual immorality that's out there, they were doing it. Uh, child sacrifice, they were literally bringing their children in their times of worship and killing their children as an offering of worship to their gods, which are really demonic in origin. And it says other abominations. So what you see here, this isn't a slip. It isn't like an oops. This is a 600-year-plus trajectory of rebellion and hatred of God and rejection of God. Now jump forward 600 years, three months before Jericho, and you come to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is really written as Moses' last words from God to Israel right before they got into the promised land. It's the last thoughts like, hey, let's get everything, let's tighten everything up because we're about ready to go in. And three times in Deuteronomy, God says, look, you're going to be facing people in this land, and this is what he says. Chapter 20, he says, however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave anything, or alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord of God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. This isn't a random passage. He says it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. He says it again in Deuteronomy chapter 9, and he goes into great lengths to describe this and to emphasize this. This isn't an accident. It wasn't like, oop, I shouldn't have said that. God is very intentional, and he is instructing Israel to destroy everyone. It's interesting, the implications of this command. Number one, as the Israelites enter the land, they are not killing people to take the land. It's important to understand that. Number two, this command is ultimately about God's judgment of their persistent rejection of him and living in sin. Century after century of rejection and it's a critical distinction, and it's one that the author goes, God himself goes through great lengths to describe and emphasize. The real story of Jericho is God is not there to knock down all our walls. God is there to bring his wrath on sin and rebellion. This is his war. That's why Israel is really so passive in this with all the marching, and, and it's just, it's God's war. Number three, finally, God commands harem, not only because of judgment, but also because he knows what would happen if Israel lives next to these people. Israel will get pulled away. Their hearts will get pulled towards rebellion. It says it three different times. You guys don't do this. It's going to pull you away. The problem, though, we face it when it's all said and done, and they go and do this, they killed everyone in the city. The question we're left wrestling with is the age-old question is how could a loving God command people to slaughter an entire city? Even women, children, defenseless children, innocent who don't even know what's going on yet, these tiny children. I was just talking to somebody in our church who uh, 
30 or 40 years ago was teaching Sunday school. They had a friend and they came across this story, Jericho, and the guy started reading it all and ended up walking out of the church. I don't want a God like that. The even more difficult question is how could God command his people to do this? I, I mean, I, can you imagine yourself doing this in obedience to God? Fortunately, the wrath of God has been paid in full on Christ. And that would be something he never would call us to. Christ has taken the wrath. But as I answer these, these questions, I do want to just give credit to John Piper, a uh, pretty uh, famous pastor up uh, north in Minnesota area. Um, great mind uh, on how to talk and think through these things. The other one is Ravi Zacharias. And uh, I've kind of been reading a lot, studying a lot. So these, what I'm saying next is really from, from these guys over the next five, maybe five to seven minutes. And just want to say that up front. I don't want to you to presume or let you presume that I um, these are my thoughts um, I want to do I want to quote Robbie though because he he he's asked this question all the time Robbie goes around to college campuses and has debates with atheists and opens the, the, the questions up to the people and say hey you got any questions just ask them and and this question is always asked every time every time he's somewhere is how could a loving God wipe out a whole city like this and and he, he starts off he says when we raise the question of evil and genocide, you always have to have God in the paradigm or in the conversation to justify the question. When you raise the question of genocide and why God would do this, or, and why is it absolutely wrong, why would somebody even have the question about why it's wrong, they're presuming God's around. Why? because they're presuming there is a moral absolute that extends beyond a single person and it covers the entire world and it extends beyond that moment in time, but for all time. There is a moral absolute that says it is wrong to take a life. Now they're appealing to a moral absolute, but the problem is they're a finite being trying to enforce an absolute law. Well, if you're trying to enforce an absolute law, it begs the question of who formed the absolute? Because something absolute has to create something that is absolute. And they're appealing to absolutes, which in and of itself is an interesting thing. When you raise a question, he's saying, you are, when you raise the question of a moral absolute, you are now bringing God into the equation. Because if there is no moral absolute, there is no good. Who determines good then? If there's no good, then there's no evil. And if there's no evil, why are we even having this conversation? So the question itself is an interesting one that someone would ask because it begs the question of moral absolutes. Well, then who, who brings the moral absolute? God. Which leads us, if it is God, then the question is which God? We don't have time to go into that whole conversation of why the, the God of, of, of the Bible is the one and only true God. So we're going to assume that we've all covered that territory. We can do that a different time. Um, you can listen to past sermons where we've, we've talked about those things. Um, but we're assuming that the triune God, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one, is, is God, the only God. So the question becomes then, why would God do this? Well, what kind of God is this? 
And I think some of the answers here today may be very disruptive for some of us. I think some of us here who even are Christians are going to be uncomfortable with some of these answers. And I think ultimately we need to wrestle with the, the question of whether we have created God in our own image. See, the guy who walked out 30 years ago had an image of God. And it was the image he wanted. But it wasn't necessarily the image that's taught in the word. What image of God do you have when it comes to a passage like this? So who is this God? Uh, Genesis chapter one through three reveals who this God is and he is the God of life. He is the creator, the author of life and he is the definer of what is good. Genesis chapter two, three shows us that God created humanity. Adam and Eve put his spirit in us. We were made to be like him in, in terms of spirit relationship. And, and communion and love and all those things. And, and you see immediately in chapter 2, 3 is where it happens, where they choose to define what is good. And, and the greatest good is them becoming like God. And you see right in the beginning, humanity replaces God with self and rejects God's existence and authority over absolute truth as the Lord of the earth, over life itself. The question is whether you or I believe this. Now, if God is truly the Lord of the earth, he has the right to do anything that doesn't violate his nature, but he doesn't owe us anything. Do you believe that? Do you believe God owes you something? I remember when uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, she's this famous Christian woman, been through so much, uh, broke her spine in a diving accident, has had this powerful ministry for God, suffers, just suffers. I mean, it's just a hard life. And she's lived for God. She's given her whole life to God. And then about, what, 10 years ago or something like that, she had breast cancer. And, and, and I just was thinking, God, you owe her, right? Does God owe us anything? No. God doesn't owe us a long life. He doesn't owe us a healthy life. He doesn't owe us anything. If he's truly the Lord of life and the Lord of the, the earth, it is we who owe him everything. Do you believe, and the Bible clearly teaches this, but I think we have to wrestle with that, that, that God has total rights over life and over death. Now we may say we believe this, but the implications of it can derail us. The implications are this, he does no wrong in this passage commanding Israel to take every life in Jericho. He does no wrong when he takes a life at two years old or at 92. He does no wrong if someone dies at a hand of a terrorist, dies by cancer, dies in a car accident, or just dies of old age. The Bible is very clear in chapter 3 there that we all deserve death. 
They died in the garden, even though they were physically alive, they died, and every ancestor from then was born spiritually dead, deserving death, and just awaiting that until their bodies physically died. Deserving of eternal life, or deserving of eternal death, rather. So bringing judgment upon a whole city is well within his nature, as a holy, righteous God who will punish and judge all evil, and it's well within his prerogative to do it. Let me ask you something. And what happens after we come to Christ is he gives us promises. And, and as the author of life, he can, he can not only take a life, but he can raise it from the dead. Let me ask you something, what's the greater tragedy? That God would take a life in judgment and not give life back to that person, or that a person who is living will not recognize the author of life and forever reject him? Which one do you think is the greater tragedy? God commands these people to be destroyed because they have persisted in rebellion against him. But that's not the only thing going on in this story. There's another story within the story, which I love this because it frames even how we understand these people being killed on one side. In verse 17, it says, the city and all that, in it, all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Skip down. Joshua said to the two men in verse 22 who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They put they brought her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. It says they go, went on, they burned the whole city, everything in it, but they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid this, the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Just real quickly, that curse ends up getting fulfilled. If you go on and you read, and I think it's, uh, it's First Kings, somebody comes along to rebuild the city and his oldest son dies and his youngest son dies. Did not want the city rebuilt because of all that it represented. But the story that's going on, and there's two contrasts in Jericho, God's judgment that's come after 600 years of waiting for these people to return, and God's salvation by grace through faith, Rahab. Rahab's a prostitute, but we learned a couple of weeks ago when these spies came in, she, she took them in because she had seen God, or not seen God, but heard about God, and she believed. She believed God was who he was. 
Hebrews says that she had this faith in God. James says she had faith. Hebrews says Hall of Fame kind of faith. She believed in God even though she had not ever seen him. And here's the crazy thing of all. You have a whole entire city that has the same amount of information as this one woman. And the whole city rejects God. And this one woman has faith in God. And, and it's, you've got to visualize this whole city decimated, destroyed, and there's one house left standing. And it's got a scarlet cord. And the scarlet cord is not an accident. It's a foreshadow of the blood of the Lamb. It's, it's this type. The, the cord is what saves. It shows the sign of faith. This woman, it's so, what's so amazing about the story is God's desire to save people. And it says a couple times in this passage, she was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. But she had faith. And she didn't understand everything. The whole city had been given much. Jesus talks about to whom much is given, much will be required. This city had been given after 600 years, 600 years of long-suffering patience by God. Then they get this miracle of the Jordan drying up. What an amazing miracle they were given. And to whom much is given, much is required. And he required them to believe in him, and they refused. They had a chance. And had that city chosen to believe in God, none of them would die. Because one woman did, and he spared the entire family. That's God. And not only did he just spare her, you have to understand something. He took her and that faith, and he brought her into the family lines of the son, the Messiah himself. Rahab is part of the bloodlines of Jesus. It's this, it's this unbelievable moment where God says, that's who, who I love. I will bring people in like that and make them my own. There's two things juxtaposed, the wrath of God and the grace of God, side by side and both. And I think sometimes we don't want to look at the wrath of God, we just want the grace Sometimes when evil, evil things happen, we don't want the grace of God. We want the wrath, and it's, it's both. And that's the story of Jericho. Powerful wrath and powerful grace. Let's pray.